the main thing that I think about is it's a phase of my life where I have more latitude in choosing what I'm going to do daily. Uh, I began working when I was 15 years old and I've never really stopped uh, yeah, until I retired. And, you know, most of that uh, I was at the direction of and in the service of some other organization. And so you wake up every day to that organization's priorities, that organization's plan. This is AI for Leaders by AI Leaders. Practical, to-the-point content, helping you drive results with AI. Here's Chris and Frank. Hi, welcome to the AI Leadership Podcast. I'm Frank Strickland. I'm Chris Whitlock. That is great to hear, Chris. You've been away for a few weeks. You've kind of covered coast to coast. Been a good time for you. Good break. Uh, the holiday season was was super. Yeah, and it has just been a busy fall and summer. Um, yeah, all of it has been really busy. But yeah, holiday period was great. Um, nice. D.C., Florida, Seattle, California. Yeah, covered all the corners. I was going to say pretty much, other than Maine, you pretty much covered the United States of America. Big country. That's fantastic. Love that. Um, I mentioned in the uh, kickoff to this series, this is the third episode in a series that we are doing on retirement. It is probably the third and last, and unless we have some retirement revelation that occurs down the road, which is quite possible. Um, but we, I did two series, uh, two episodes uh, in this series and while you were away, Chris, and so great to have you back. Um, let's start by just for those in our community that don't know you well, let's just start with a, a quick thumbnail of your career. And if I thought about your career, I would think about three words, military, intelligence, consulting, and then AI and analytics, uh, treating that as one word. Uh, so how did, how did you come to be in the military? Uh, when I finished high school, uh, I had had been working and started working pretty young. Uh, I had some aspirations uh, to serve in the in the military, even a military academy to attend one. Didn't make the cut for a military academy at the time, righteously. And so I enlisted with a friend of mine and went in initially to the Navy. Uh, really enjoyed that, learned a lot in technical disciplines, uh, but ended up having an inner ear problem for the job that I had intended to do did not work out. And so I, I used that opportunity to switch to the army, which was really where my affinities had, had been through the years, my interests and <clears throat> through a, a program with the, the army national guard component two of the army, um, I went to officer's candidate school and then trained as an infantry officer and, and served in the, in the National Guard for a set of years early in my career. And I look at the, all of that as just really formative. You know, at some level, it was almost like an internship. Uh, that's how I look at my military time. It was not anything remarkable. It was a normal 
military experience that a, a lot of young men and women have. I would commend it to people, and I, I look back on it well. Met a lot of great, great people while I was in. Yeah, Chris, I'm going to make a point relevant to AI leadership in just a moment. Um, but let's go back into your your high school and just your kid years. And you know, you and I have been friends and business partners and best friends for over three decades. And, you know, I've spent time with your family, with your parents. I, I know you probably as well as your siblings know you. And um, kind of two pictures as you were making reference to your high school years that I think help people get an insight to you that will make a connection to AI leadership in just a moment is uh, your bedroom floor uh would not be unusual to walk into your bedroom and find your floor set up uh, as the Battle of Shiloh, you know, with infantry <laughs> men and artillery arrayed around and battle formations. And if you weren't in the bedroom, it wouldn't be unusual to find you out in the woods trooping around with a gun, you know, looking for something to shoot. Are those two pictures kind of a reasonable encapsulation? Yeah, I think, you know, a facet of that was growing up in the South and in areas that had a lot of opportunity for that as far as the outdoors component. And yeah, for whatever reason, because my family did not really have uh, any significant military history, but um, I think, you know, we grew up in an era where that was prominent in my childhood, and I locked onto it at about an early an age as I can remember. Uh, I, I had an interest in military-related topics, military history, uh, etc. So, yeah, coming up through junior high and high school, that was a prominent part of of my life. I was really into uh, U.S. Civil War history and World War II history in particular, but um, living as a young person in the Vietnam years, that was in my consciousness as well, although I was a juvenile at the time. Um, yeah, that was also an area that that I paid mm -hmm. attention to. Now, you you left the military and you went into national intelligence. You went to CIA as an analyst. You know, how did that happen and, and what was that like? What did you do? Well, I had intended to go back into the Army on active duty. Uh, that was my plan when I had, had started the journey in the National Guard. But what that was going to require for righteous and legitimate reasons was that I effectively I restart. I would re-enlist complete officer candidate school again in the regular army, et cetera. And that did not feel great. Um, and in that window, I had connected on campus recruiting uh, with the Central Intelligence Agency. And I was really interested in military history, international affairs, things of that nature. So that connection felt really seamless uh, thankfully, in retrospect, I made it through. Not a lot of people do make it through mm -hmm. that process. And I uh, began as a military analyst, and I immediately trained in a technical discipline, uh, the imagery analysis uh, discipline. So my first four months or so in the agency were completing the National Imagery Analysis course. Uh, which taught you about the sensors, a wide range of targets, and, and being able to apply effectively 
analytic techniques to that. But as I grew in the discipline, the, we were early still in compute. When, when I entered the agency, there were green screen terminals that were used daily in the work. Um, Delta Data, I think, was the name of them. Or, or yeah, Some, some of our younger listeners, Chris, can just go Google green screen terminal. To see yeah, it, it, it is amazing to me. And then we entered a period where uh, Sun Microsystems began introducing terminals. And I learned a particular facets of imagery analysis that were more technical. And so... Um, yeah, without diving too deep, I got trained in areas around making more precise measurements at at the analytic station, not at a specialized um, workstation that we had in the community. We were trying to distribute that work so that more people could do it. So there was a desktop-based version of this software. And you had to learn uh, some rudimentary commands in C. I had already taken basic in college and was comfortable with uh, programming in the basic language. I have to learn some rudiments about that in C that interested me and I just like technical things. Uh, so most of my time in the agency, most of it was focused on military related analytics. I did that in a function imagery uh, analytics, and then I did it as an all source analyst uh, writing for the PDB, the President's Daily Brief, the National Intelligence Daily, and some different regional journals that were uh, put out by the agency at the time. It was a great learning experience, great place to contribute. And um, yeah, I hold all of those activities in high regard. Mm. So you and I met in early 1991. You had left CIA and you came to work for a government program where I was a government officer. And and you began a career that went over 30 years that was largely around advanced analytics and then artificial intelligence, but it also had a consulting thread kind of when I say consulting thread, you know, for people that wouldn't have a good practical sense of what that means, just characterize that that aspect of your career a bit. Uh, the way that I got to that, Frank, and the way that I got there, it was the end of the Cold War when I was at the agency, and I had a senior military analyst who, he knew me well. I liked technical-oriented things. I That really jazzed me, and most of that is built in industry, not in the government. The government contracts it, but it's built in industry. And a lot of support-related services come from industry to assist the government. And he encouraged me to explore that. He had done that and then returned to the agency, and he encouraged me to explore it. So I took a job with Booz Allen Hamilton and, and landed there. And consultants typically are helping the government either in simply performing in a staff augmentation role, augmenting, expanding the level of work that's being done, or running improvement projects, building new technologies, etc. cetera. Uh, I was much more inclined to the latter, uh, new capabilities, new uh, improvements. Uh, but that, that was where I landed there. There was another facet of it that's kind of classic to consulting in that I was an imagery analyst and trained on interpreting 
uh, image data, but my first client assignment was very deep in signals intelligence data. I was not trained in that. I had no exposure to that. It required a lot of learning around technical um, space-related systems as well, communications, imaging systems in, in space. And so my first several years were heavily oriented to learning. Uh, I had to learn software. I had to learn domain. I, I had to learn a lot about uh, how sensors worked related to certain kinds of targets and how that data would manifest itself on the machine that a military user would would be applying for their work. And that's that was consulting. We, we did training-related support, education-related support uh, to primarily military-based audiences uh, in my first decade of consulting. And I ran an analytics lab uh, on behalf of the government, government leadership and consulting support to that leadership. Um, that was much of my first decade in, in consulting. Mm. So just to put a bow on this segment, you, you and I started a company, this story is pretty well known. If people want to dive into it more, many of our listeners know it, but started an advanced analytics company, sold that to IBM, went to IBM partners at IBM for a few years and then finished up our careers at Deloitte. I, I want to put a bow on this segment, Chris, by just tying it to AI and something that you and I believe at at the core of our bones is essential um, for AI leadership. You have had this deep foundation of domain knowledge. You you can't be an AI leader in a given industry or in a given government domain without working to master the domain knowledge, the data, the systems, the missions, et cetera. And, and you have always been just, yeah. I, you probably had a copy of Jane's in your hand when you were two years old or something. I don't know. <laughs> and for those that don't have... A military analytical background. Yeah, that's a throwback reference. When we used it would be like the encyclopedia for military um, objects, uh, yeah, units, etc. Yes, I, and I'm quite sure that you never made a head call at CIA without taking a copy of James <laughs> with you. Um, but that domain knowledge, you you learned foundational analytical competencies for those listeners who haven't taken in the first two episodes. I made a connection um, to retirement and analysis and analytical problem solving in the second episode. And we just believe that analytical thinking, um, which most people, I remember Chris, the exercise you and I used to do, hand people a three by five card, have them work independently, write your definition of analysis. And you'd find that most people have a much more conceptual understanding of analysis than a practical understanding. You got very practical in what is analysis and how to perform it. And then the technical um, domain knowledge, you you've mastered imagery data, you mastered SIGINT data. There's no intelligence discipline, human, MASINT, um, that you haven't worked in a very hands-on way with the data uh, and software development. That lab you ran had a bunch of software engineers working in it. So, so those three kind of characteristics of your career, I think, um, have helped make you um, the AI leader that you are. 
Well, yeah, as I listen to that, and I don't want to derail you, but it is a wonderful aspect of consulting that it inherently brings variety. If you want variety, it's going to bring a lot of variety. And with the variety become comes a learning demand. And so, yeah, for me, uh, that was a wonderful aspect of that. And all those different intelligence disciplines, the data around it, uh, I got that opportunity because of consulting. And I would say the other thing for me in that first decade of doing it is you learn the maths in school. You know, you take calculus, you're taking stats and things like that. Not immediately applying it in a robust way. When you end up in an environment where it really matters to understand performance of systems, how to improve performance of systems, how to judge applicability, when you have a scarce resource and you could place it in different areas, well, you want to understand in a robust way, statistically and probabilistically, what that might look like. That was fantastic for me in, in building a foundation. And then in those years, in the, in the 90s, there were algorithmic approaches for signals intelligence related data, but it was all, also a really interesting time in the evolution of image-based processing. Uh, automatic target recognition was uh, a buzz phrase at the time. And in a variety of image types, you had to learn the art of the possible. Some of that was hands-on at the screen with data and applying techniques. And some of that was reading and learning and, and dealing with people in industry or around these sensors. But uh, consulting brings a lot of opportunity for variety and with variety comes a lot of opportunity for learning. And for me, that was just a great, it was a great industry and worked out super uh, for me relative to my personality. Mm, fantastic. Uh, great content there that I think our community can infer some principles and lessons from. So let's wrap this segment talking about your career and segue then uh, to <clears throat> retirement we're going to talk about retirement in kind of three contexts, um, and, and the first one is just pretty broad. If this content is of use to you, we encourage you to subscribe to our YouTube channel and give this episode a like. If you're listening to this episode on Apple or Spotify, please take time to give us a five-star rating. And if you have a moment, leave us a quick review. You'll find more resources like this podcast and training courses at our site, AILeaders.com. Let us know what you think. We value your feedback. Chris, let's start with just a broad question. Um, how do you think about retirement? You, you retired at 60. You certainly had a lot more to do. You, you've been doing some things in AI Leaders. You've written a book. You've got a second book that's coming out. You made some courses. Are you really retired? Why did you retire? How, how do you think about retirement broadly? That's an interesting question. Uh, uh, for <laughs> me, uh, I guess the main thing that I think about is it's a phase of my life where I have more latitude in choosing what I'm going to do daily. Uh, I began working when I was 15 years old and I've never really stopped uh, yeah, until I retired. 
And, you know, most of that uh, I was at the direction of and in the service of some other organization. And so you wake up every day to that organization's priorities, that organization's plan and the requirements that come with that, whether uh, people leadership issues, um, mission-oriented tasks that you're trying to sort out uh, uh, for your organization or or clients. Retirement, to me, the the biggest thing, I guess, is it's the phase of my life where I have uh, remarkably more latitude to choose what I'm doing daily. It's, It's not an absence of work. It's latitude with respect to what what I want to work on and where I want to invest my time intellectually and physically. Uh, that's how I would, would think about that. That's, that's real. I think that's really helpful, Chris, very pithy um, and insightful. Even with you, you and I started a company, we borrowed $125,000 and launched a company. Thankfully it did well. We sold it, but you mentioned other organizations priorities even when we were the owners of the company, the two of the three owners, we were still being driven by external forces, profit loss, you know, hundred plus people, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Did we have choices? Did we have some discretion? <laughs> sure. Did we have total discretion? Not, not by a lot. Not hardly. Not hardly. Yeah. Running <laughs> your own business. Uh, can sound great from the outside, but it, it, yeah, not necessarily a cakewalk. Yeah. Uh, on um, that. But yeah, I think that for me, it is the single biggest difference is that I'm really setting my days up to a much greater extent to what I want them to be. And, you know, there are trade-offs there all the time. There are trade-offs and uh, we had a really busy 2023. The last six months of 2023 were were very busy. Uh, but I have the latitude now to make choices and it does not have to be equally busy in, in the next increment. Mm. That's retirement to me is mm. I have a lot more latitude around what I invest my time in and, and what I prioritize. So that is a good segue then to the second question that I wanted to ask you. So Chris, given that you have latitude, I talked about one of the previous episodes. It was the first episode that retiring from something to something. And I talked about a a gentleman, um, that was a a close associate of some friends of mine that I was playing golf with and and he was having real difficulty in retirement he had made a lot of money in the tech space but but frankly had fallen into what his friends observed was perhaps alcoholism but he was just he was really in a bad place in terms of drinking and and they they made this characterization that that he doesn't have anything in his life. So that reminded me, and I talked about in the first episode, you, ha- you have to retire to something. Um, so, so you have flexibility, you have choices now. How have you thought about managing or how do you manage uh, kind of the, 
the transition of this from really structured environment, really ordered environment to um, retirement that could have, you know, 360 degrees of freedom. Yeah. I, I, I think one facet of that, <clears throat> and, and it's still a moment that I think about, is the two months prior to my retirement. So moving from a calendar, being very busy and having a lot of meetings, whether client meetings, team meetings, or individual coaching-oriented meetings, uh, my calendar began to have a lot of things drop off of it because I was purposefully taking myself out of some of the client-oriented activities because that would create transition uh, things for later, transition challenges for later. And as I did that, it immediately hit me in that 60 or so days prior. I'm like, oh, what am I going to fill my time with uh, as I retire? Because I'm not, not going to be sitting around on the couch watching news. Um, I've kind of had a hard uh, cold turkey quit from television news and all of that stuff and, and just don't generally want to hang around and watch TV all the time uh, for the last several years. So um, it was in that window first that I made a long list of activities, things that I wanted to do in a year, in three years and five years that were physical or skill oriented uh, or experiential in nature. And then we began talking about the book as well. I would say generally, um, it's kind of like old school going to a cafeteria line uh, for a dinner and you want to scoop a lot of things onto your tray and your eyes are bigger than your appetite. What if I went back, I have not thought about doing this, but if I went back and looked at the list of things that I was going to do in the first two or three years, that list is ridiculous. Uh, and I've gotten to a, th a thimble full of it. But the the big ones, I wanted to be able to invest substantially more time in my health and fitness. Uh, the consulting industry generally can put a lot of wear and tear on you. Uh, meals, meetings, uh, yeah, stuff that uh, is not necessarily wellness centric. Uh, and I really wanted to get that in the rear view and put a lot more attention on that on, on my front, but also keep my mind active. And those were the two big kind of dominant things for me is got to keep my mind active and need to invest more time, want to invest more time in my physical uh, health and fitness. So from that, those two months just prior to going into retirement, those were the two big goals for me. Yeah. I, I said in the first episode that uh, in defining retirement, you know, when people come to us and say, were you really retired? You're writing books, you're teaching, you know, et cetera, that I say retirement is not the sensation, cessation of all activities. You, you're retired, you're not dead. Um, and, and that going through the process, uh, the transition process you went through, brainstorming some things that you want to do, 
and then learning the lesson that, and you know, what a classic lesson for senior leaders. And, you know, in our case, we were executives. Um, you're going 125 miles an hour. So as you said that, it's kind of natural that you're going to come up with more than what you want to do in retirement. But at least that gave you some direction and, you know, you were able to adapt and learn over time and kind of dial it back instead of, I called it jumping out of the airplane and being in free air. You haven't defined anything that you're retiring to. And you wonder, you know, what am I doing with my time? Well, let me start drinking and sitting on the couch. Yeah. And I, I've met people or, or interacted with colleagues from years ago who retired ahead of me and they actually had regrets about unplugging from their work environment. Um, and I, you know, while I haven't had big, huge heart to hearts, most of that I associated with the intellectual part and not only the intellectual part, but the interactions. And I do think, you know, for any of us to be healthy, you need a, a variety of interactions. We're all different. Some need more than, than others, but, um, yeah, both in the fitness arena and, and intellectually, I crave interactions. Work inherently builds that in. In retirement, you have to think about how you're going to do that and the kinds of interactions you're going to have. And, and I have some vibrant online communities where I participate, and then I have uh, in-person uh, environments like we all would and mm. people who I interact with. And yeah, on balance, you net all that out. It makes for full days and it, it keeps you intellectually and physically active, which is what I'm, uh, I'm after and mm. kind of crave learning always. And, um, some of that being skill oriented, uh, yeah. And, and a lot of that, nothing to do with analytics or AI, uh, just life and yeah, the world, uh, that that's how I've tried to approach, uh, air quotes, retirement. It strikes me that possibly for knowledge workers using that broadly, but, but people, especially coming out of analytics and AI work and other knowledge work where you are very intellectually engaged, it is an environment that's very oriented to learning and continuous learning that again, coming out of that to kind of a cold Turkey environment where you don't have intellectual stimulation, that's probably a good thing for people to think about. How am I going to scratch that itch that I have? And again, scratching the itch might not be you're doing it eight hours a day. We're, we're not working on AI leaders eight hours a day for sure, but you're doing enough that you haven't gone from, you know, 30 or 40 years of doing knowledge work to suddenly that part of your brain just turns off completely. Yeah, I would agree with that um, very much. And it, it does resonate that notion of especially for people who've done a lot of knowledge oriented work for their career. I, I think it's, it's a curious thing, at least for me, uh, 
consulting brought an enormous amount of variety, but that variety was primarily in the national security community, primarily. Um, I had excursions to some other uh, parts of the federal government in particular, and some in private business, but um, the agenda, your learning agenda, what I needed to focus on, that was all kind of driven by the work. In retirement, you have to set that. And I, I would say it's easy, at least for me with my personality, it's easy to drift. And um, having some focus that you're excited about is is an interesting challenge for knowledge worker. Writing the book for us was a way to focus, you know, so there was a daily activity. The way my mind works and the way that I'm rigged, I would get fatigued of that pretty quickly. A single point of focus, a single topic area would not be very satisfying to me. And so I have to have other areas of interaction, learning, et cetera. And I have been able to to do that and keep it constructive and and useful, but that's a that's been my journey in, mm. in retirement and just trying to make sure I'm challenging myself, I'm learning, uh, I'm also enjoying it. That's part of the purpose of this phase is enjoyment should be higher uh, than it was <laughs> in in some of the earlier ones. I always tended to like my work. Um, there might be a few periods that I would look back on, but uh, you have tended. Uh, to like my work a lot. And here I get to enjoy what I do a lot more. Chris, one note on drift, and I'll just share a personal um, reflection on myself. And then we'll, we'll wrap this segment and go to the final segment where we're going to talk about wellness and your physical wellness journey, because you have some great things to share there. We're the, essentially the same age, separated by a few weeks. So we retired at the same time and uh, we retired a year after the COVID pandemic and the COVID lockdown. And when you said drift, that really resonated with me. I would say that the impact that the lockdown and just the whole pandemic era had on how our lives are structured and ordered, um, and then going from that not too long after that into retirement, I, I think, in fact, actually, this is a good characterization. You and I had a joint retirement party, and it was the first time we retired from Deloitte. It was the first time that we had been in a large group environment like that since the pandemic. It was November of 21 and, and, and it was so close to the pandemic and coming off the hills of the pandemic. It was the first time that a large group like that had been able to assemble. So I would just say reflecting on myself and how I have needed to discipline myself in retirement, I too am very much capable of that point of drift that you mentioned, and I can drift into some really bad habits um, if I'm not careful. So I won't elaborate on that, but 
but I would just say I've had to be very mindful, very disciplined about my sleeping, uh, about my eating, about my drinking. Um, I've just, I've had to, to be careful because that structure that you have, uh, from, you know, a nine to five, or in the case of an executive, a five to nine job, that structure can help order your life in such a way that you can kind of prevent that drift phenomenon. Whereas with the amount of freedom that you have in retirement, uh, it can become a problem if you don't, if you don't guard against it. Mm. Yeah, that rings. Yeah. All right, so let's segue then to this third segment. So, Chris, in this third segment, you have had quite a wellness journey in that, as I would characterize it, you have, for the time that I've known you, always been very oriented to your physical health. You've, you've been into fitness, you've been into nutrition, but we were entrepreneurs. We were successful entrepreneurs. Uh, it consumed your life. We were executives in two large global firms. That routine consumed your life. You just anatomically, you're six, five, you're a really big frame guy. Um, if, if you look up for those that have not met Chris, if you look up barrel chested in the dictionary, there's an eight and a half by 11 glossy picture of Chris as an illustration, you, you have a large frame and there have been periods, um, that I have known you where, uh, you have carried around, uh, a good bit of weight, uh, a good bit of weight. And so just talk about what you have done and and maybe some suggestions that you would give leaders um, both that are in jobs working full-time jobs right now uh, but then also thinking ahead to retirement kind of what sort of practices what sort of data how are you and how have you uh, attended to your physical wellness Okay. Um, that, that I will do that. That is, um, something that I view as pretty personal, you know, for each individual, you have to find your way through that. Uh, but I'll, I'll share, yeah, some of my own approaches on that and journeys. Uh, it's funny as you were saying that, um, I remember two periods in my life, particularly, that were uh, notable. We were about a year into starting our business, uh, Edge Consulting, and it's all, yeah, starting a business, if you want it to be successful, is all-consuming. And I was commuting at the time every, every week to uh, Atlanta from Washington, D.C. My children lived in Atlanta, and I got on an airplane one Friday uh, to fly home and I went to bend down to tie my shoes and it was like, man, I am out of control. And that night I, I went by and I bought a book on the Atkins program. This was 2004. And in six months I lost 50 pounds. <clears throat> now that, 
you know, you once said about me something that I think is true. Anything worth doing is worth overdoing. <laughs> uh, I, I'm very prone to that. I'm very prone to pick a thing and then, ah, uh, all, all in, not casual involvement. But what had happened during that period is just, uh, you're, it's a ton of eating out. You're really busy. You're economizing on physical activity. Your calorie intake is way out, uh, outperforming your calorie burn and, and it just stacks up. And, um, for me, I, I just went, a full throttle uh, on a cardio-based program at the time. So I was very focused on burning calories and then controlling my, my inputs. And this is kind of simple for my life. I've been through phases. I've been through phases of martial arts. I've been through phases of running distance. I've been through phases on weightlifting and functional fitness, et cetera. And I find for me, for my personality, I need to change periodically because I get bored. And periodically uh, is defined after 30 years of data, 18 to 24 months. <laughs> yeah, I think that's actually pretty real uh, for me at the two year mark. Yeah, I need to be thinking about something new, uh, new emphasis, new, yeah, just new, new approach, et cetera. So, uh, for me, as an example, when I retired, I knew I wanted physical fitness to be much more significant part of each day. Well, it does not matter what your mind wants. Your body can only support a certain amount of that activity. So for me, it was important to be structured. Uh, for a good friend of mine suggested that I check out Orange Theory Fitness. So Orange Theory Fitness became a building block in my first two years of retirement. Uh, there have been phases in that two years where I would go as many as five times a week to Orange Theory Fitness or OTF. Um, in my current posture, I am in the three time to four times a week. And that uh, appealed to me for this reason it's it's very focused on cardiovascular health, but it's a pretty fulsome range of fitness activities. So you're doing some time on a, a treadmill or a bicycle. You rotate and you're pulling on the rower for a, a period of time. And then there's a period of time that you're working on the what is referred to as the floor, just with dumbbells, step-ups, TRX bands, things like that. So it's variety, it's community. The community in Orange Theory is just fantastic. Uh, I have met a ton of people there, uh, prior military, um, civilian their whole life, uh, men, women. Yeah, it's, it's a really eclectic and wholesome uh, community. And it's structured classes with schedules. So every day at 7.30, I would go to class for uh, the first year uh, or multiple days a week, 7.30. And, and then I would go and do work. I, I would go and write. And then in the afternoon, I lifted weights. And I'm a part of Lifetime Fitness, which is kind of like a fitness resort. Uh, it's got a wide <laughs> range of activities there. But I focus more on strength uh, training when, when I'm at lifetime. But 
I, I would say for me, being able to just cycle my activities over time and then in retirement, having the latitude, and it is a glorious latitude to program different increments of that every day. Um, I, I have periods of physical activity and movement that have a purpose and a design that I'm, I'm working on to keep me uh, healthy. And the way that I think about that is I may live to be 90 years old. I may live to be a hundred years. Who knows? I could die tomorrow. Uh, I do not know how long I will live, but as long as I am living, I would like to be healthy. I would like my health span to be close to my lifespan and not hit a point where my health is so poor that, yeah, while I'm still ticking and got a heartbeat, I, I'm, I'm not functionally mobile. I'm not functionally strong. I do not have the stamina to, to get outside and do the things that I want to do. I care about my health uh, in that context physically. Mm. M most leaders, blessing of being professionals and especially in the senior leader ranks and especially so at the executive level, have access to high quality health care and therefore you have access to data about yourself. There are uh, web services, there are online services that you've availed yourself of, but talk a little bit about how data um, has been helpful to you and how you've used data in, in managing your physical wellness. Not shocking that I would use a fair amount. So <laughs> I am probably 10 years in as an example, maybe 12 on quarterly getting a blood panel done. <clears throat> That blood panel helps me to understand um, blood sugars and diabetes-related uh, in indicators that are helpful. Helps me to understand my hormone levels, uh, prostate cancer indicators, whole range of things that are material to my physical health. Uh, I, I want that data and I want it four times a year because I feel like that helps me uh, stay on top of that. Uh, a lot of my routine exercise work, I do under a sensor of some type, a heart rate sensor would be the most common, but I'm looking at the intensity of my work and uh, I track that over time. Uh, certain workouts lend themselves more to that than others. It's one thing that with Orange Theory Fitness, I've really appreciated a lot is you're doing most of that uh, under a heart rate monitor and you, you set goals in that regard. Uh, that's been good. I periodically do a metabolic uh, performance assessment that uh, typically is done on a bicycle or a treadmill, but you're, you're putting a mask on your face and the, the purpose of the assessment is to see how efficiently your body is handling oxygen, moving oxygen, um, and, and your athletic level of performance. And I'm generally doing that, uh, twice a year or so for the last, uh, 10 years that's ebbed and flowed as my schedule has allowed, um, and then I, I am a nerd in that I track uh, a lot of my strength oriented workouts, just to understand 
what's the volume of work that I'm doing? What are the weights that I'm handling? Repetitions, etc. And that just helps me to uh, grow over time. I very seldom step on a scale. Um, I, I don't look at my body weight that much, uh, but I look at these other things a lot. There was a um, an article in the Post, excuse me, <coughs> pardon me. There was an article in the Post this week that we'll put in the show notes. Um, you made me think about it when you referenced the blood panel. It's on something detected through the blood panel called APOB, uh, which in this article, the assertion was made much more relevant to understanding your heart health than LDL and HDL and total cholesterol measurements. We'll drop that in the show notes uh, for anyone that is interested. But likewise, like you have been doing those data gathering through detailed blood screenings, cancer screenings, Alzheimer's, genetic indicators, et cetera, and just really good, again, we're blessed um, to have access to healthcare and high quality healthcare. Yes, the healthcare system has issues. Yeah, I do not take that for granted, Frank. And you know, all these things, they, they cost money, gym participation costs, um, participation in different fitness activities can cost money. There are things that are free. Uh, there are things that, that we pay for. I'm blessed, you know, to be able to participate in a pretty wide range in retirement, both having the time and the resource to commit to that. Not everybody does at all points in their career. And I've been able to modify mine over time to kind of fit where I was financially and time-wise, but uh, for certain, um, two or three times in my career, I've put just put the fitness cart in the ditch badly. And typically the source of that, the driver of that is work demands, work and family demands, consume more of the time eating and overabundance and in social events and things of that nature, and then minimizing or squeezing out time for fitness related activities. And it's, it's a terrible combination. It can be the perfect negative storm um, because you just, you can't outwork the fork. And if you're in a job that has you eating and participating in a lot of stuff like that. And you're not disciplined just for normal ones of us. And I'm a normal guy, nothing special about me or remarkable in that context. It's easy for it to get out of hand. And um, I'm thankful for retirement in that, in that context. It's, it's great to have the time to invest. So good. We'll wrap this segment and, and segue to, the end of this episode, you can't outwork the fork for those that are listening and saying perhaps to themselves, well, Chris, that's great for you. It's great for Frank. You guys have a lot of discretionary time, as you alluded to earlier in this episode, when you're working for someone or you're part of an organization, leading an organization, um, you, you don't have the discretionary time that you have in retirement. No, you don't, but you do have control over what goes in your mouth and into your stomach. Um, and so, yeah, putting a chokehold on the fork, uh, if I were coaching, well, I, I got to the point just Chris, you'll remember this as one 
anecdote. I, I got to the point kind of midway in the last segment of our career at Deloitte where I just said to my admin, we're not having meetings with sandwiches and cookies, full stop. But, you know, I, it, I'm the executive in charge of the meeting. We're not having sandwiches and cookies. Uh, we will have salad and a protein. Uh, and if someone wants a sandwich and a cookie, they can go to the cafeteria and get it. But what we're going to have for our meeting is a really so nice simple. salad. And it seems so simple, but it's yeah. a big deal. And yeah, you can control that, uh, Frank. I think it's a it's a great point. And there's stuff you cannot control as much. I was talking to a doc, a, a doctor, a few years ago, and it, we were going around on philosophies on wellness and whatnot, and and his his basic message to me was, Hey, you need to take care of your eyesight, your hearing, your cognition, strength, and mobility. Well, I've, I've had issues with my eyes. I've had transplant in a facet of one of my eyes. I can't control a lot of that. You know, your hearing, you can control somewhat. I could have done better with my eyesight by wearing uh, eye protection more religiously through the years, uh, hearing and how you uh, present yourself in noisy environments or or just yeah, putting yourself in a place where your ears are getting blasted with headphones and with earbuds. Um, yeah, that, that can degrade. But to, to keep the other parts, what you eat, it's a big deal. And yeah. yeah, that action you took as a leader, I remember that and it was notable to me and it's admirable. Uh, it is something that can be controlled and, and it's a good thing to think about. Hmm. Well, Chris, thanks for sharing that. Uh, hopefully uh, our listeners enjoyed that. We'll derive some principles from that. Uh, we'll segue back in our next episode uh, to just things that are strictly oriented around the leadership of AI. But uh, we got a lot of questions in this past year in 2023. We trained about 2,500 senior leaders and executives. And um, I don't think we ever had a session, Chris, where we didn't have uh, multiple people. Uh, how's retirement? Are you retired? What, what does retirement mean? How do you think about retirement? So hopefully uh, those of you who are close to retirement, those of you who are on the front end of your careers or anywhere in between, uh, hopefully these uh, three episodes uh, help you to think and just start to get yourself ready uh, for retirement. Um, we will be back in our next episode. Uh, Chris and I are about to finish the manuscript. Uh, I would say finally, that's a knock on me, uh, for our second book. Uh, in, in our next episode, uh, we'll talk a bit about the content uh, of our second book, uh, which is squarely uh, on AI leadership. So for that, uh, thank you for listening. We appreciate you. Indeed. Indeed.